So, uh, Sarah and my mother-in-law close said we should uh, rephrase the question, what's your favorite activity in winter to do inside, should be the question. So, and then close said her favorite activity to do outside during the winter is to fall without walking. So, that's... Yeah, okay. Fall without walking, got it mixed up. It's funny, I, I think, um, I'm not, I'm not, so th- th- this is a funny story about Elijah and Chloe, his grandmother. Um, so they're hanging out, I had work or something, Mary's at work, and Elijah was sick home from school, and uh, they're looking at this coin book that Chloe had, you know, where you collect all these quarters, like the different states, and Elijah said to Chloe, hey, I, I don't want to offend you. Um, and, and Chloe's like, well, what? What is it? What is he like, when you pass, can I have this coin book? <laughs> I thought it was great. Um, so you have your grandkids asking for things. For when you pass and you're afraid of not falling when you're walking outside in winter. Don't know what that means, but... I love it. Don't you love kids, their honesty? Like, look, I really want that coin book. No offense. My favorite activity outside in winter is a sled ride, which, in what? I have no idea what that means. Oh, Christmas tree cookies. Remember when I said that? That's good. You probably don't remember anything else from my sermons, but you remember that. I like to, what is that? I like to fall without walking, and I like to eat. Christmas trees in the winter. I like the sled ride. We went sled riding um, on the snow day that the boys had on Friday. How many people were pumped for that snow day? Do we got anybody here? I know there's more than that. There's got to be. Maybe those of you who are retired and don't work probably don't like snow days because then things are busier, right, than what they normally are. We enjoyed it. Hey, we get to talk about pursuing this God that we just got done worshiping and that we continue. Actually, we're continuing to worship through the sermon portion of the service When Brandon and I were talking about our Sunday morning services, we were reminded that every aspect of the service is worship, from the music to the sharing that happens from the stage to the message to uh, the giving of our tithes and offerings. We're we're worshiping God now through the whole service. Um, But we get to talk about engaging God the Father. And I do pray that God would set a fire in our soul to want more of him. And the way that we get more of him is engaging with God through the same habits that Jesus engaged the Father and the Spirit through. And if we want to be able to live the way that Jesus lived and and 
have the attitude that he lived with and to, to do, uh, have the thoughts and the behaviors that Jesus had, we've got to have his habits. Because in the heat of the moment, when the pressure's on, if our heart has not been changed inwardly, if his character has not been formed in us, no matter how hard we try in the moment, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do at that time. We win the battle in our preparation for the battle, and we prepare for the battle as we engage the Father through the same practices that Jesus engaged the Father through that had him poised and ready to live out the ways of his kingdom. And so here are the four habits of Jesus we're addressing in this sermon series. Jesus engaged the Father through prayer, the word, Christian community and experience. Now, I originally intended to spend like two Sundays tops on prayer, and this is our fourth Sunday. This is a problem of mine often. And I haven't talked to Brandon about this, but I have no idea how we're going to do the rest of this before the Easter sermon series starts. And you've had to been thinking about that. And I guaranteed, I guarantee if we would have met Thursday, you would have asked me that question. I don't know how we're going to do it. If I err in any way as a, as a pastor, hopefully I err on the side of like not skimping. Um, so I don't know. I don't even know about this sermon, to be honest with you. I was like rewriting parts of it like at 10 o'clock. And I was reminded of Martin Luther King Jr. this week. He was rewriting his high, I Have a Dream speech while he was sitting on the stage about to go up and speak in front of 250,000 people. Oh, that would just, and he had been working on it for months. So I don't know, but here we go. I don't know if I made it more clear by working on it more or if I made the waters more murky, but we will soon find out. This is what I do now. The great I am, he can take a few pieces of food and make it a meal for thousands. And that's what I continue to trust in as I uh, try to do what I can here on Sunday mornings. Here's what we've learned about engaging God through prayer so far. We should have both, time, both regular times of prayer where it's just concentrated and focused. And we should also have a running conversation with the Lord as we go through our day. Here's the second thing we learned. We can have our focused times of concentrated prayer any time of the day. Morning, day, or night, right? We've discovered these things through looking at Jesus' prayer life. Thirdly, we are free when we have these focused times of prayer uh, to pray anywhere so long as we can be in a place free of distractions and alone with the Lord. Fourthly, during these focused times of prayer, we are free to position our body in any way that helps us focus. And then fifthly, the content of our prayers should include words about the Father's character, the Father's honor, and the Father's kingdom. We are going to continue to consider this morning what the content 
of our prayers should include when we have, when we pray, whether it's those focused, concentrated times of prayer alone with God or as we're going, you know, as, as we have this running conversation with the Lord as we go throughout our day. Pray with me, because I don't think I've done that yet. Let's ask God to do something with this. Here we go. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we get to gather together as a family. Thank you that we get to consider what it means to engage you through prayer. Lord, we pray that you would do the heavy lifting here for me, that I would be your assistant, you would lead, that you would would take my feeble attempts and you would you would make it a meal for every person in this room that nourishes them spiritually, that sets a fire in their soul for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we're going to head back to the Lord's Prayer. We looked at, I really believe there are six main pieces of content in the Lord's Prayer. And the possibilities of how to pray within these six categories are really endless. We've already covered the first three, as I mentioned. We're going to look at the final three. But let me just read the prayer to you again in its entirety. Matthew 6, 9-13. In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Man, my mind's all over the place this today. But I want to tell you, I was talking to my friend Gary Dolan, who you have met, and uh, he said that there's this term, and then we were talking about something else church-related, but he said there's this term in engineering where you so concisely put something in an explanation, and it is fully adequate without having any more than what's required. I forget the name of the term, but to me, this is what Jesus' model prayer is. It's, it's so good. It's so short, but yet it's so good, and you can spend a lifetime investigating this prayer, diving more deeply into it, being fed by it. It is a remarkable prayer. Let me talk to you about the last three components. We've talked about the Father's character, the Father's honor, the Father's kingdom. Let's talk about the Father's provision, forgiveness, and protection. First, the Father's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus couldn't have taught his disciples to pray for something any more basic and seemingly unspiritual than for food, bread, even bread. I mean, of all food, bread. The most basic physical need that we have is, you know, for food. And this tells me, as I consider this line in the Lord's model prayer, is that there is no request that is too small to ask the Father. No request that is too small to ask Him. For the great I Am, who is also our Father, He has knit us together perfectly in our mother's womb. He knows the number of the hairs on our head, for they are all numbered. His thoughts are too numerous, too numerous for us to count like the sand on the seashore. 
He monitors our coming and our going, our lying and our standing. He is concerned about every single detail of our life, both big and small, because he's working out all of those details for our good. And he is a father that loves to bless out of his unlimited resources. He loves to give. And so we have every reason to ask God for what we need. And as I was thinking about this truth, this is what popped into my mind. A spiritual giant is not a person who hardly asks God for anything. And when they actually do, it's only regarding big, important spiritual matters but rather the person that has the habit of asking God for everything that they need. Lord, my car really needs a new set of tires. You know the ones that I have on the car are no longer safe. Can you lead me to the right tires at the right store, at the right place, in price? Lord, We are barely scraping by financially. Can you help me to figure out a way to uh, increase our income? Father, I could really use a raise at work. Could you move in my employer's heart so that they see my value and so that they would be willing to pay me more? Father, I, I can't find my keys. Will you help me locate them? Father, our roof is leaking, and I have no idea who to call. Will you lead me to the right person who won't, you know, gouge me, but, but give me a fair, fair price? Father, I, I, I don't know what to say at my next meeting. Lord, would you give me the right words for this situation in the right heart to, to speak them with? We should pray for our every need, big and small. After, I I thought this was um, pretty cool, how Jesus, after giving his model prayer in Luke 11, he he immediately goes on to tell this story um, to his disciples, and he has them imagine that they have a friend that has been traveling and is weary from travel that comes to their house at midnight and in the middle of the night, and they have no... No food to give this, you know, road-weary traveler of theirs that just showed up at their house. And he says, you know, imagine then going to your neighbor and saying, hey, I got this guest. I have nothing to feed him. You know, can you please give me something? And Jesus says, um, even a neighbor who would initially resist you because it's so late and, and he doesn't want to wake his children by getting up and helping you, that if you persist in asking him, even your neighbor who's reluctant to help you will eventually help you and give you food to feed this person that showed up at your house. And the point that Jesus was making is, look, God is not like that reluctant neighbor, He does not give begrudgingly. Like, he loves to give. He loves to bless. And so, how much more will God give you what you need if you ask him? So, ask him. Luke 11, 9 and 10 says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Immediately after telling this story, seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Look, 
Who receives? The one that asks. Who has the door open to him? The one who knocks. Who is the one that finds? The person that seeks. If you do nothing, do you receive? No. You don't. And so this tells us some of God's blessings only come when we ask. Our choice of whether or not to ask God determines on some level whether or not we receive from him. And that's why James, Jesus' brother, could tell his audience that he was writing to, you do not have because you do not ask. Look, our prayers matter. They make a difference. Often our life is more difficult simply because we fail to ask God for what we need. As we sang in that old hymn, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I don't know what acute needs you have today. You may have a financial need. You may have, uh, you may have a need for wisdom. You've got to make a decision, and you're unclear as to what to do. You may have a physical health need. You may have some sort of emotional need for peace or for joy or for hope. Have you asked your heavenly Father to supply that need? Could it be that you don't have it because you have yet to ask for it? Could it be that your decisions are not panning out because you are relying on your own human wisdom and you have failed to ask for God's supernatural wisdom from above? Ask, seek, knock. The promise is, this is remarkable, everybody who does receives. Phenomenal. Now, as you consider what your needs might be this morning, chances are you probably haven't thought of the greatest need that you have. It's the greatest need I believe that every person has. And we need to look no further than the next line in Jesus' model prayer to see it. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This line in the prayer is now moving from the Father's um, provision to the Father's forgiveness. Think about it. Jesus, after he said, you know, taught his disciples to pray, "Give give us this day our daily bread, he could have followed that line up with any need that his disciples had in the moment, which were a variety of things. But he chose to follow that line up with this line focused on forgiveness. And I think the reason he did it is because this need for us is of forgiveness. The Father's forgiveness is absolutely critical if we are going to live an abundant life. It is just as critical as us having bread and, and a, to eat and clothes on our body and a roof over our head. 
And as I started thinking about why God's forgiveness is so important, these are the things that came to mind. First of all, the Father's forgiveness enables us to know him. The Father's forgiveness enables us to know him. The Bible makes it repeatedly clear that our sin separates us from God. And it leaves us in a position unable to have a relationship with him. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesian believers, he he stated in Ephesians 2.12 that they used to be without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. They were separate from God. They didn't have God's promises. They didn't have hope. And as a result, Paul, he stated back in the beginning of Ephesians 2, that the Ephesian believers were dead in their sin. And then he went on, he goes on in Ephesians 2 to describe that death as living and being ruled by their sinful desires of their flesh and mind. In other words, the Ephesian believers, before they were connected to Christ through faith, they were so self-absorbed, living for themselves, not even aware or caring about what God wanted. They were doing what they wanted when they wanted it done. As a result, their their conscience, their, their, their desires, their attitudes, their will were all just distorted by sin and they turned inward on themselves. This led to them chasing things that could not satisfy, and it led to them destroying others in the process. We were watching a documentary on Taylor Swift this past week, Mary and I. I don't know how we got on this, but we were. And it's sad to me because you see this celebrity trapped in this cage of constantly trying to prove herself and make herself feel good enough and please people. And she said she worked and dreamed as hard as she could to win a Grammy. And then when she finally won the Grammy, she said, is this it? This is all there is? Is there anything more? This is how the Ephesian believers were living apart from Christ, chasing things that couldn't satisfy. And that's why Paul said that the Ephesian believers in 2-3 were children of wrath. In other words, not, not only were they living in all kinds of self-destructive ways and hurting other people in the process, but they were on death row headed for their ultimate demise. Because they were on the path to get the fair punishment that their sin deserved when Christ returned as judge, which is complete separation forever from God in in the place that the Bible calls hell. And the reason why hell is so horrendous and it's so dark and the torment is so great is because not even God's common grace is in that place. Look, God's common grace allows the sun to shine on even the evil. It allows the evil to enjoy a lot of good things. But in hell, all of that is removed. 
And this is precisely where the enemy wants to keep people, right? In an unforgiven state, apart from God, living to try and grab a hold of things that will never even satisfy them, even if they grab a hold of them, destroying other people in the process and on the road to final destruction. Some of you here today may be sprinting down that path. And you must cry out to God from your heart, forgive my debts. And it must be done before you die. Because when you do, the decision you have made is final. Whether it's been to ignore God, or whether it's been to overtly oppose him, the decision is final and both are sin. And you do not know when you may breathe your last, as the death of Kobe Bryant has all reminded us. Here's what God promises, though. If you will cry out to him, forgive my debt. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Why is God faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness? Because he is a God of great mercy and love that sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin by his death on the cross. And that's why Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, the Father's forgiveness enables us to know him. But that's not it. The Father's forgiveness enables us to overcome the power of sin. Because when we cry out to God and we ask to be forgiven of the penalty of sin, our sin problem doesn't just magically go away, does it? It still remains an issue because there's still old sinful habits of thinking and behaving that are left over from our life apart from Christ. But here's the thing. And actually, the whole sin issues, all the sin issues we have, they actually might appear to become a little bit more difficult because for the first time, we're really aware of our sin. We're no longer oblivious to it. And we're no longer trying to justify it or ignore it so we don't have to feel the guilt and the shame that comes along with it. But here's the thing. If the penalty of our sin has been removed, and if we have been forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future, then we have this courage to go to God with the things that still are tripping us up because we no longer fear judgment. We no longer fear condemnation because in Christ there is no condemnation. And so we, never, we no longer have to hide in shame and guilt, but we can come boldly to God with our sin, knowing that by his spirit, he will give us the power to overcome it. And that's why, as a Christian, when we pray, forgive us our debts, what we're doing is we're recognizing that we still have a sin problem, even though that penalty has been paid for, that we still have these old habits. And what we're doing, we're, we're acknowledging that, and as we pray, forgive us our debts, Father, we are saying, God, search me, know me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. 
and redirect me to abundant life in your kingdom. Give me the power to overcome that sin that you have revealed to me. You see, we cannot partner with the Father to overcome that which we do not know. And what's wonderful is because we have the Father's forgiveness, when we see the sin that God reveals to us, we have a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow is, man, I don't like that. That's not cool. But God loves me greatly. He has forgiven me for that. So Jesus, I praise you for your forgiveness. And let's work together so that this is overcome in my life. That's good godly sorrow. The Father's forgiveness, it helps us to know him. It helps us to overcome. It allows us to know him. It allows us to overcome the power of sin. And let me just say this finally about the Father's forgiveness. It enables us to forgive. This is critical. Look, if Satan cannot keep you from crying out to God, forgive me of my debt, if he cannot keep you from Jesus and faith in him, And if he cannot keep you from actually going to the Father and saying, reveal the wicked ways in me so that we can work together to overcome them, if he can't keep you from those things, this is what he will do, Christian. He will do his best for you to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart towards other people. Guarantee. This is critical. And when we allow unforgiveness in our heart, to germinate, it produces a redwood tree of anger, a redwood tree of resentment, and a redwood tree of ill will towards others. And it can even create such a malice in our heart that we just overtly do very evil things to other people. The mixture of bitterness, resentment, anger, and evil's desires in our heart to injure others, it is a poisonous mixture. It will suck the life right out of you. It will poison your soul. It will rob you of joy and peace. It will have you so chained to the past that you have no way of enjoying the present. It will cause adverse physical Health effects on your body, this is well documented. And acting on this poisonous mixture to hurt another person, it will be short-term gain, because it may feel good to see somebody else be injured, right? Because they've hurt you so deeply, but it'll learn it'll leave or it'll lead to long-term bondage for you. While forgiveness is really, really difficult, especially if you've been hurt very deeply, but it is short-term pain for long-term gain. Has someone offended you? Has someone deeply wounded you? Are you harboring bitterness, resentment, and anger, and visions of getting even that are robbing you of joy and peace? Are you ready to release this poisonous mixture? You can. 
But here's the thing. You need Jesus to do it. You can't do it with your strength alone. Chances are you would have already done it. How does God help us to forgive? Well, as we engage God through prayer and we come to know him and experience him more fully, there are several truths that he will plant in our hearts that will enable us to forgive, that will enable us in our hearts to grow this redwood tree of forgiveness that sucks the water right out of that redwood tree of unforgiveness. Here they are. God's heart breaks for you. He is deeply saddened over the hurt that you have experienced. At the beginning of Jesus' model prayer, you know, Jesus taught us that God is a good father. And fathers, good fathers don't like their children hurt. Believe me, he is saddened, deeply saddened over what has happened to you. Secondly, God is able to completely understand what you're going through. He knows firsthand what it's like to be excluded, abandoned, lied about, taken advantage of, misunderstood, publicly humiliated, and abused, both emotionally and physically. Thirdly, God desires to comfort you and heal your wounds. That's his desire for you. That's why he came. Fourthly, God has in an amazing way forgiven you for the countless ways, both big and small, that you have excluded him from your life, abandoned him, taken advantage of him, attempted to steal his glory, ungratefully received his gifts, taken credit for them, mismanaged them. Surely we who have been forgiven much can forgive others much. Fifthly, God has promised to work out all things for your good, even your wounds. When it's all said and done, because of God's great power, because of his great grace, the most horrible things that have happened to you will only serve to enhance your glory in the end. And and finally, God will not let wickedness go unpunished. Your perpetrator will get exactly what they deserve at the appointed time. Justice will be served. May God, as you engage with him through prayer, and as you consider the forgiveness that he has given you, may he root these truths deep in your heart so that in your heart becomes this redwood tree of forgiveness for the hurts that others have caused you. And remember that forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. It is a choice to not make your perpetrator pay. That's what forgiveness is. And you do this regardless of your feelings. And guess what? If you actually make this choice through the spirit that empowers you to do so, the feelings may come. But if they don't, you make the you 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 stick with the choice. In my mind, this is the greatest threat to the American church. It is unforgiveness. It's not the political climate. It's not the predominant view on sexuality, which is so drastically opposed to God's view. 
the greatest threat to the church is unharbored forgiveness or unforgiven, (laughs) what is it? Unforgiveness harbored within our own ranks of the people in the church. Look, the more you get involved with a body of believers, the greater the chance that you are going to be hurt. Because with increased intimacy always comes the opportunity for increased conflict. May no one be here be harboring unforgiveness towards another person in this church. How can we be bearers of the gospel of reconciliation and forgiveness if we are at odds with one another? And let me, uh, I know this is, uh, so let me finish up with this point. I mean, this is going to take just, I mean, it's not like a sentence I'm going to finish up with with this point. But to me, this makes sense as why, as to why you go from, Father, give us our daily bread, right? Like, meet, meet our needs, and then Jesus goes into this forgiveness thing, because that is our greatest need. And then he goes from the Father's forgiveness to the Father's protection, This makes perfect sense. It's so easy to forget that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. It's so easy for us to forget that we have an enemy that is uh, prowling around seeking someone to devour. It's so easy for us to fail to recall that our enemy is the father of lies and there is no truth in him. Jesus doesn't want us to forget this. And that's why he instructed his disciples to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Jesus doesn't want us to let our guard down. There are those times when the spiritual battle that's raging all around us becomes just glaringly clear. Um, my wife, Mary, she just started reading uh, Jenny Allen's book, Get Out of Your Head, and we were talking about the book, and she's like, you got to hear this. So she told me <clears throat> about, the, about, the, about the story, about a story in the book. Allen, if you don't know who she is, she's a Christian author and speaker. And she was at a mega church getting ready to get on stage to share and she's out in the hallway by herself, which is unusual, but for some reason she was. Well, there's one other person out in the hallway. There was this lady who Jenny Allen made eye contact with, and Jenny Allen smiled at this lady. And then this lady came up to her, pointed at her right, I think pointed at her, looked at her and said, we are coming for you. Jenny Allen was like, Uh, sorry, I don't understand, you know. She said again, we are coming for you. Again, Jenny Allen's trying to figure out, all right, what does this person mean? And she said, you know what I mean. We are coming for you. Jenny Allen, she gets up on stage to uh, share before she did. She let a security guard know, like, hey, this woman is making threats against me. Can you keep an eye on her? She gets up on stage, starts sharing. All the power in the entire place goes out. Pitch black in the auditorium. As she's standing there, and it's quite silent, she hears shrieking coming from the hallway. This lady and her daughter were out there with large, loud 
shrieking. And Jenny Allen, she said, like, I've always believed in spiritual warfare. But did I ever believe in spiritual warfare after this instance? Look, we are in a spiritual battle. Most of the time, it's not this overt. Satan likes to work in covert ways. Often, he tries to get us to believe little lies. Because if he can get us to believe little lies, he can get us to sin. Often, he tries to very covertly get us to fulfill legitimate desires through illegitimate means. He takes our desire for love, our desire for respect, our desire for belonging and joy and so forth and so on, all of which are good, natural, God-given desires, and he tries to get us to fulfill those desires in ways that are not godly. He whispers in your ear often, you've been working hard. You deserve it, right? It's not really, I mean, it's not a major sin. No one will know. You'll just do this one more time, and then you'll stop tomorrow. Has he ever told you that lie? Have you ever heard that? And then, when you actually do what he's tempting you to do, this is what he does. You complete fool. You are a sad excuse for a Christian. How could you? How could you? He wants to heap the shame and the guilt on you so super thick He wants you not to just feel shame. He wants you to feel as if you are shame incarnate, that it's not just, I mean, it's your identity. And he especially likes to tempt us when we are what? Brandon mentioned this in a car ride with him, and I forgot about this, HALT, the acronym, hungry, right? Alone, or angry, I mean, hungry, angry, lonely or tired. That's why he likes to tempt us. And so when we pray in this model prayer, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, what we are doing is we are going to God and we are asking him to reveal where we are weak. We are asking him to reveal, Lord, where will Satan try and attack next? Where is he looking to get a foothold in my life? What lies, what might he tell me? What lies am I already believing that he has already told me that are leading me to dark places? Lord, give me the strength to be on alert and to resist the devil and to stand firm. You may recall Jesus in the garden. What did he tell his disciples? Or at least the three, Peter, James, and John. What did he tell them? Watch and pray. Why? So they would not fall into temptation. Because of what? Their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. And Satan was looking to sift them like wheat. You see, watching, that is being on high alert, anticipating how your opponent might attack you, and how you will counter if he does. And talking to God about all this through prayer is how we strengthen the flesh to be able to do what needs to be done when the enemy attacks. Unfortunately, Jesus' disciples failed because they failed to prepare for the battle that was right there about to hit them. Jesus, fortunately, he prepared well. 
He prayed while his closest friends slept. And therefore, he was strengthened to do the battle, the decisive battle that won the war, which was his unjust trial and execution that won the war. Not long ago, Josh Hose, I don't know how we were on this topic, but we were talking about Chris Spielman. And we were ta- he, Josh said the reason why Spielman, who was undersized, became such an amazing linebacker in the NFL is because he would actually, of the, the opponent he was about to play, he would put their most recent game up on the wall, and Chris Spielman would play the whole game from his position. And he would be reading the line moving, the defensive line moving, and where he would come and where the running back was going to come through, which hole on which play, out of which formation. And he would read and react in this room watching the game on the film. What if we were Chris Spielman's when it comes to this spiritual battle that is raging in us and all around us? There you have it. Father's provision, Father's forgiveness, the Father's protection. And then Jesus ends his prayer by circling back around to the first thing he focused on, the Father's character, the Father's honor, the Father's kingdom. He prays. What does he pray at the end? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Mm. So, practical example, and I'll close with this. So I may be praying to God, and if I am filtering, remember, this is not, this is a guide, a framework to follow, right? I don't think Jesus ever intended for us to pray these exact same words every time we praise, pray, but I think he did desire for us to always include these elements to our prayers, so I, if I'm going to bring my prayer through those last three components, let's say I had an argument with Mary, I mistreated her, which uh, the mistreating part, that's not unusual, unfortunately. God is working me on me there, no doubt about it. But let's just say, like I was short with her, or I got annoyed when she was annoyed, whatever. And so I may, I may pray, um, Lord, today... You know, I'm thinking of the daily bread that I need. Lord, thank you that you meet all of my needs, and you have been so faithful over the years to give me exactly what I need when I need it. Lord, I, I have this basic need of just really desiring to treat Mary well today, to love her well, to care for her well. Lord, I pray that you would meet my, my need in this way. And then I may think about, all right, I'm moving from the Father's provision. I'm going now to the the, the Father's forgiveness. Lord, thank you for the ways that you have forgiven me. Thank you that when I messed up yesterday, I'm already forgiven. Help me to live out of that forgiveness. And Lord, you are so patient with my failings. Why am I not patient uh, with Mary? Help me to show that same forgiveness and grace and love to her, right? And then I may move to the Father's protection. I may be visualizing, all right, this is what I have to do today, Lord. And I'm going to be seeing Mary this evening. And she's had a long day. Chances are she's going to be exhausted. And who knows? She could be irritated about something. So, Lord, if that happens, 
Lord, how do you want me to respond? Help me, help me to think through that. And I'm praying and I'm visualizing how I'm going to respond in the heat of the battle. That's an example off the top of my head. Surely you can think of better examples, but this is how we pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us this model prayer. Thank you that you have provided a framework for us. That what you have commanded us to do, you have given us what we need to do it. That's how you always do it. Lord, I pray that we would include these aspects of prayer into all of our prayers. May we dig deeper and deeper into each component. May, as we do, you transform us. May we be poised and ready to do the right thing when it needs to be done for your glory, our sake, and the sake of others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.